you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 14, Luke chapter 14. Um, I'm wondering this morning if you've ever been unprepared in life. You know, one of the most common dreams that people have is entering a situation completely unprepared. Walking into work and there's a presentation that you have to give and you are completely unprepared. Walking in, even uh, they, they talk about senior adults having dreams of walking into a classroom, sitting down at the desk and a pop quiz being given and you are completely unprepared. I read this week a story of a man who led a group of people that were unprepared and it was more costly than just failing a quiz. The guy's name is Sir John Franklin, and in 1845, he and 138 officers and men embarked from England to find the Northwest Passage across the high Canadian Arctic to the Pacific Ocean. They sailed in three boats, and each sailing vessel carried an auxiliary steam engine and a 12-day supply of coal for the entire voyage that was projected at two to three years. Instead of the additional coal, this is what they brought. Each ship made room for a 1,200 volume library, a hand organ playing 50 tunes, china place settings for officers and men, cut glass wine goblets, and sterling silver flatware. The officer's sterling silver knives, forks, and spoons were particularly interesting. The silver was of ornate Victorian design, very heavy at the handles and richly patterned. Engraved on the handles were the individual officer's initials and family crest. They carried no special clothing, only the uniforms given to them for Her Majesty's Navy. Now you can imagine on a two to three year voyage across the Arctic, those preparations were not enough. Two months later, a British whaling captain met the two, met two of the ships in Lancaster Sound and reported back to England on the high spirits of the officers and men. He was the last Europeans to see him alive. Years later, stories began to come from some of the native peoples of that area of these ships and men outside of them pushing them through the ice in clothing that was not suitable for the weather. They found remains in caves where they were all by themselves with what little clothing they had. They found, interestingly enough, some remains that were still grasping on to the sterling silver Forks and knives and spoons. Now, as I said, walking into a test unprepared does not compare to going on a two to three year voyage unprepared. I mean, we've all had that experience, right? When you leave for a vacation or a trip and the first thing you think is, I have left something behind. Now, most of the time it's inconsequential. And the truth is, where we're going, we can get whatever we have left behind. But these men were woefully 
underprepared for the journey ahead. Well, what's interesting is we're going to talk today about a passage of Scripture where Jesus' whole intention is to make sure that people aren't underprepared for the task of following Him. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this series of messages about whether in life you're a fan or a follower of Jesus. And a couple of weeks ago in the early service, we talked about, uh, we did it through Nicodemus' testimony of who he was and, and what he believed. But last week in the second service, we talked about the real lesson in Nicodemus' life is people somehow think they can follow Jesus and it won't turn their lives upside down. When the truth is that following Jesus is not a small change or a little adjustment, that it literally should turn our lives upside down. Well then, last week, and here we talked about that passage of Scripture where in John chapter 6, Jesus is talking about all of these things and He basically says to this group of people that all they care about is getting their stomachs fed and seeing things performed and seeing the miracle show that's going on. He says to them, basically, if I'm not your everything, then I'm nothing. Well this week, here's some good news. We're going to read an even tougher text about following Jesus. It's one of those texts that we're going to read in a minute, and the first thing you're going to think in your mind is, now surely he couldn't have really meant that. that that's not what he, he's trying to make a point, but, but that's really not what he meant. And, and I can tell you that after reading um, about ten scholars this week on this particular verse of Scripture, what I found is most of them immediately dismiss and say that's not what he really meant. Well, my question is, if that's not what he really meant, then why did he say it? Right? And so I, I, we're going to look at a passage, and here's what I want today, okay? I, I want you to deal with, struggle with what is meant by one of the toughest verses in Scripture. Let's look at John, I mean, excuse me, Luke. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said. Now, we're going to do something a little different. Stop there. Don't read the next verse. I know saying that, now you're going to read the next verse. But we're going to go to the end of this. Because here's what he was saying. He, in verse 28, or actually in the middle of this little section, he, he wants them to consider what they're doing. And he says in verse 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him. Saying this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. The idea is that we ought to think about the decisions we're making when it comes to following Christ. Or suppose the king is about to go out to war. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the others stood a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Then he says in verse 33, In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. That's not even the tough verse. Anyone who doesn't give up everything he has can't be my disciple. Back to verse 25. Large crowds are gathered around Jesus. They're there and they're, they're, um, 
They're following him. They're watching him. They're excited about him. He's just told this parable that really got on the Pharisees and said, basically, listen, you have decided that you're not going to listen to me. And so my father is going to go into the highways and the byways and we're going to find whoever will come and we're going to they're going to follow me. And so basically we have this moment when Jesus has told the Pharisees, anyone that wants to can come. A radical statement in their day and time. But then he turns right around to the large crowds that have gathered that are probably amening and that's right and keep going, Jesus, and says, but let me tell you, before you start to follow me, consider what you're about to do. Remember when we said that when Jesus got a large crowd, he more times than not ran them off? Look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not, what's the word there? What's the word? Hate. His father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now let me tell you where scholars go. Immediately they start to ask the question, what, what does the word there mean? Well, let me tell you what the word there means. The word there means hate. Okay, I know that's a novel concept, but hate means hate. Now, they will then say, but it's part of a greater idiom. You know what an idiom is? I, I had to look it back up. It just means that words put together that have a different meaning than the individual kind of words by themselves. And they say that in Jewish thought, when you said something like this, what you really meant was that you love them less than the other. Well, what's interesting is, that's the way Matthew interprets it. Matthew, when you read his passage of Scripture, Matthew is talking about this, and he says, if you do not love me more than you love your family, you can't be my disciple. But Luke doesn't soften it. And Luke doesn't soften it partially because it's in the midst of a passage when Luke describes it of giving them the idea of what it means to follow Jesus. Now for those of us in the West and especially America, we have no concept of what it means to abandon our family to follow Jesus. But for most of the people that would have been listening to him that day, they would have had to abandon their family to follow Jesus. In fact... We know Peter had a family. And all indications are he left his family to follow Jesus. Now let me ask you a question. What would you say if you knew a husband who left his family to chase after something he said God had called him to do? What would you say if a man up and left his wife and his children, his ailing parents, because he said that God had called him to do something. You see, in our understanding, that is such a foreign concept that the immediate thing that we would say is, well, he's crazy and he's not doing what God called him to do, whatever it is. But all indications, that's what Peter did. All of the books say that Jesus 
was really meaning here that you just got to love them a little bit less than you love me. But I think the language is way too strong for that. I think Jesus is asking a question. And the question that he's asking is simply this. Am I your one and only or am I one of many? Where is your loyalty and your allegiance? We've been kind of comparing in this series being a fan versus being a follower. And the truth is, fans have allegiance to a team, but oftentimes their allegiance can ebb and flow. They can go and come. They can, when, when things are good, they're there, and when they're not, they're not. When you build a new ballpark, everybody comes in until you start losing quite a bit, and then it goes down. When, when you're winning, you know, it's amazing how many... Uh, T-shirts you see from the University of Kentucky these days. Now, I'm not saying there aren't true fans, but it's amazing when somebody wins a national championship, how many fans suddenly are really big fans again. Jesus is saying, my question for you is not whether when times are good, you're good with me, and when times are bad, you've got other things. My question is, am I your one and only, or am I one of many? You see... I think Jesus means that in comparison to every other relationship that we have, our love for Jesus ought to be so much, our devotion to Him, our allegiance to Him ought to be so much that every other relationship seems like hatred in comparison. Now that's not love a little more, that's love a lot more. Because if I'm honest with myself, with the way that I love my kids and I love my wife and I love my family, if my love for Jesus makes that look like hate, it's got to be ratcheted up a whole lot. Do you love Jesus more than you love your grandkids? Is Jesus more important to you than your spouse? Or your mom or dad? Or your brothers and sisters? We live in an area of the country where we're known for sticking by family no matter what. And let me just say that, that other places in Scripture make it pretty clear that it's important to stick by family. In fact, in the New Testament it says if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than somebody that's not a follower of Jesus. You're a heathen. But we also live in a place where it's very easy to cross that line from our families being very important to us to our families being idols in our lives. And it's not just families he's going to talk about. He says the next thing is that if you can't love me more than you love your own life, you've got to hate your own life. And you can't follow me unless you carry your cross. And then he says, bound in 33 we read, you can't, you can't follow me if you're not willing to give up everything you have. And then at the end he uses this little phrase which means basically, if you weren't listening, you need to go hear again. He who hears has ears to hear, let him hear. So let me ask you, is Jesus your one and only, or is Jesus one of many? I'll ask you four questions today, and then we're going to be done. And these four questions, I hope, will help to shed some light and let you think about your relationship with the Lord. First of all, when it comes to your life, a way to tell whether Jesus is your one only or one of many is to ask the question, what do you sacrifice for in your life? 
What do you sacrifice for? What do you sacrifice money for? What do you sacrifice time for? What do you sacrifice in your life for? What is it in your life that if it came up to it and you thought to yourself, you know what, I don't really know if I should do that financially, but because it means so much to me, I'm going to do it. What is it? What's the last thing to go on your budget when the budget gets tight? What's the last thing that you say, if I don't pay, I've got to pay all this stuff, but the one thing I know I have to pay is this. Is it your house payment? Is it the car payment? Is it the credit card statement that you've kind of racked up over time? If you don't pay it this time, the collectors are coming. Is it your tithe? Is it buying those grandkids those presents that they desperately need? Or making sure your children have what they need for this moment? I'm not saying that that Every dollar you spend has to go towards Jesus. But I do think that you need to ask yourself the question, is my commitment to my sacrificial living first and foremost to my Savior or is it to somewhere else? What do you sacrifice for? In Matthew 6.24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then that statement, we've talked about a couple of times, but it's so um, burdensome to me when I really think about it. It says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And I told you before, I read that verse incorrectly for about 35 years. That's a long time when you're 36, all right? Because I always read it, where your heart is, there your treasure will go. But that's not what it says. It says your heart follows your treasure. Now a good example of that is when you go from being the one who has things purchased for them to the one that is purchasing the things. When I was growing up, guess what? My parents bought most of the stuff for me. Here's a a thought. They didn't have me out in the workforce at nine years old. So everything I had was bought through them. And you know what? It didn't mean nearly as much to me then as when I go to the store and buy something now. Right? When I buy my kids a present, one of the first things I say to them when I see it laying around where it could get stepped on is, if that gets stepped on and broken, I'm not buying you another one. Because my heart has followed where my treasure went. I care more about their video games than they do. Because I bought it. And you know what's amazing? When Eli gets some money for a birthday or something, how much better he takes care of something when he buys it. So what Jesus is saying here is, where your treasure goes, your heart will automatically follow. So if you look at your bank account and your whole treasure is spent on your family, guess where your heart is? If your whole treasure is spent on having a good time, guess where your heart is? If the first thing to go in the budget is your giving to the church, guess where your heart is? Is He one of many or is He your only one? What do you sacrifice for? Here's the second question I want to ask you. Where do you go for comfort? When life brings pain, where do you turn? Maybe it's a parent or a spouse. Maybe it's the refrigerator or a drink. Do you bury yourself in work? All of those have the potential to compete with Jesus for our devotion. 
I have found that when people go through difficult circumstances, oftentimes their heart is revealed more than any other time because the place to where they run is the one on whom they depend. Who do you go to for comfort? Now, I'm not saying that we don't seek out other people for comfort at times, but the question is, who do you go to first? Who's the priority? Third question. What frustrates you? What frustrates you? You can often tell where a person's heart is, where their devotion is, where their loyalty is, by what frustrates them. Get somebody really frustrated and you've hit a nerve. Amen? Now, the truth is some of us are more easily frustrated than others. Don't point, please. But some of us are more easily frustrated than others, but all of us have something in our lives that just frustrates us. I just can't believe, or, you know, when they, I, I just, I would never. How in the world could they ever let? Next time you're having a dinner conversation and one of you gets really frustrated, that's probably not the time to say, hmm, what is that revealing about your heart? Because that's going to make them more frustrated, all right? But at some other time, say, you know what, why does that frustrate you so much? Frustration often is a sign that the thing that we value, we think is being disrespected or not done with. Imagine a child who is excited that his father is going to take him fishing. As the day goes on, the fish just aren't biting. The more time passes, the more frustrated and disappointed the father becomes. On the drive home, he is silent but clearly upset. Frustrated, why? Because he didn't catch any fish when he's just spent a whole day on the lake with his son. What is it that frustrates you? Ask a close friend or a family member what seems to disappoint or frustrate you most. If an answer becomes a messy house or a losing team or a dip in the stock market, it may reveal more than you desire for it to reveal. What gets you frustrated? And here's the last of the four questions I want to ask you. What gets you really excited? What makes you clap? What makes you shout? What makes you smile? What are those things that get your heart going a little faster? What are those things that you look forward to in life? What are those things that really excite you? I ask myself this question. What would my kids say really excite me? What would my friends say excite me? Like the things that frustrate us, the things that excite us can point to something or someone that is in competition with Jesus for being our one and only. Sports, decorating, music, work, your appearance, all these things are fine and good, but they have the potential to become a type of idol that's robbing God of your whole heart. Following Jesus, according to this passage, where He says if you don't hate your father and your mother, your brother and your sister, your children... We can, we can interpret here grandchildren. Following Him means following Him alone. The truth is fans don't want to put Jesus on the throne of their hearts. Instead, they keep a couch on their hearts and at most give Jesus one of the cushions. He's asked to share the space. But Jesus makes it clear to this crowd. He's not interested in sharing your heart. Jesus won't share you with somebody else. Throughout the Old Testament, 
the depiction that we have of the way the Israelites interacted with God is that they loved God, but they were constantly in an adulterous relationship. If you don't think that's the way it's compared, just go read the book of Hosea. And the entire book compares the people of God to people that are in an adulterous relationship. And for us in our day, sometimes that seems like a crude description, but that's the biblical analogy. The prophet Ezekiel described what it was like for God when we share our affection, our attention, and our allegiance with anyone or anything else. He says it's like we're having an affair. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 16, God says to His people, you give gifts to all your lovers. In Luke 14, Jesus defines the relationship we are to have with Him by making it clear that if we follow Him, we follow Him and Him alone. He won't share us. Not with money, not with a career, not even with your mother and your father, your husband or your wife, your children or your grandchildren. Now the question that we have to ask is really twofold. One is, does God have the right to demand that kind of loyalty? And the answer is, absolutely He does. And the second question is, are you willing to obey? And the thing that we have to understand is this. When Jesus explains how He will not share your affection or devotion, He isn't just saying how He wants you to love Him. He's also making it clear how He loves us. One pastor has said, you can imagine it this way. Let's imagine that this week you walk into a restaurant and you see someone sitting at a table having a dinner with someone who is not their wife. And you come up and say, who is this woman? What are you doing? And they respond, oh, don't worry about it. I'm on a date with this other lady tonight. My wife knows, but she knows she always comes first. You think that's going to fly? Y'all didn't make much reaction. Apparently that might fly. Y'all must have different relationships. than That would never happen. Or, or at least... Among people who are trying to follow the Lord, it would never happen. As soon as I walked, uh, or as soon as they walked into the door from their date, there would be serious repercussions. Right? What? If they got in the door, yes. Now there's a reason, right? When, when, there's going to be a wedding here this weekend. And there are going to be two people that are going to stand on this stage and they're going to say, forsaking all others. They don't say forsaking some others. They don't say forsaking a few others or forsaking all others until a better offer comes along. They say what? All others. And Jesus is saying, you are to forsake all others. I am to be your one and only. And one of the things that I do in counseling couples that are getting ready to be married, I tell them that the relationship they have with one another is the second most important relationship they will have. Because God comes first. But it's not just like a little bit, like, well, my relationship with my spouse is about a 9, and my relationship with God is about a 9.2. That's not what it's talking about. If you don't hate, you can't follow me. Here's what I think is interesting. In almost everything I read this week, people tried to apologize for what Jesus said. 
That's not really what he meant. You know who doesn't apologize for what Jesus says? Jesus. He just says it. Jesus makes no apologies for his strong words. He wants people to be clear about what they're signing up for. Many fans respond to a gospel message that was designed to sound as easy and as appealing as possible. So like the new homeowner who signed on the dotted line to buy the house with no money down and interest-only payments for a year, they find themselves a little shocked to determine that the stipulations are bigger than what they expected. Jesus didn't bury anything in the fine print. It was his main point. John Oros was a leader in the Romanian church during the communist era. When he spoke afterwards about some of the things that went on there and there, he, he talked about what would happen oftentimes in their services. And he said, during communism, many of us preached. And people came at the end of the service and they said, I've decided to become a Christian. And this is what we'd tell them. It's good that you want to, but we would like to tell you that there is a price to be paid. Why don't you reconsider what you want to do because many things can happen. You can lose and you can lose big if you make this decision. John said that a high percentage of them chose to take part in a three-month class to better understand the decision they were making. And John said that at the end of this period, many participants declared their desire to be baptized. Typically, I would respond, it's really nice that you want to become a Christian. But when you give your testimony, there will be informers here who will jot down your name. Tomorrow the problems will start. Count the cost. Christianity is not easy. It's not cheap. You can be demoted. You can lose your job. You can lose your friends. You can lose your neighbor. You can lose your kids. You can even lose your own life. That's a lot different than the invitations we normally hear, right? That's the kind of invitation Jesus gave. Oh, sure, there were moments when He said, Come, To me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Sure, he talks about a life that is abundant, more than we can imagine. But he also gives an invitation in this way. You can't even come unless I'm your one and only. So here's my question. Is Jesus your one and only? 